Welcome to the second consecutive Meltzer Five Star Project episode for Let Me Tell You Something, the professional wrestling podcast series in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mother, and you're on the Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has recently given five stars or higher. It's AEW pay-per-view time, so of course there's a five-star match attached mm-hmm. to it. But my goodness, it is a pay-per-view that has not come out with the greatest of reputations. Was this the salvage job that it needed to be after a disappointing undercard? Simon, what are we talking about? And what gimmick match are we discussing for its second outing and its second five-star rating? We are... At Double or Nothing 2023, and we are watching the Anarchy in the Arena match between the Elite, consisting of the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega and Hanman Page, taking on the Blackpool Combat Club, which is comprised of Brian Danielson, Claudio Casagnoli, John Moxley and Wheelie Yuta. So as you say, this is the second time we've had an Anarchy in the Arena match. The first one, I don't remember if it was for Double or Nothing the previous year, but it was a while ago anyway. So this match builds off of both that match and also the ongoing feud that we've had between the Elite and the Blackpool Combat, which has drawn in more people. I always love that, actually, when a feud draws in other people. Yeah. I always loved how the Raven and Tommy Dreamer feud went on for so long in ECW that at some point or another, almost everyone else on the roster was at least involved in one match that included that feud as a part of it. <laughs> like, suddenly Shane Douglas is there. Suddenly the Dudley boys are there. Suddenly Brian Lee's helping Raven out. Suddenly the Sandman gets involved and Raven's nicks his wife and his son and all that sort of stuff. So what had started off as Hangman Page and John Moxley going at each other in the an earlier five-star match from the previous pay-per-view, the Texas Death Match, Moxley continued to build on that aggression and then started attacking other people within the satellite of Hangman Page. Because at that point, there was like a gradual healing of the rift between Hangman Page and the other members of the Elite and the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. Yeah. That still wasn't fully there until really the final week going up. And even in this match, there's a teasing of potential dissension at one point. I remember the previous time that we talked about Anarchy in the Arena, I said the problem that that frustrated me, but there's a reason that people love the match in other for other people. And also another reason that so many people rated the third Briscoe Brothers against FTR match as their favourite of the trilogy. Is that the chaos, to me, can sometimes be aimless wandering and a lack of a central focus. Yeah. And Anarchy in the Arena 2, or as we like to call it, Anarchy in the Arena does that again but maybe there's a bit more narrative structure to it or at least concept and it probably also helped that it was too few participants yeah but there was still so many times especially in the first half of the match where stuff was being missed by the cameras not the cuts just the poor selection of shots 
Yeah. It was moments like when Omega and Moxley are fighting by the poker chip with the barbed wire, which is obviously a reference all the way back to... Double or Nothing 2019. Yeah, where Moxley DDT'd him on the poker chip, and then when they had the follow-up unsanctioned match, it involved barbed wire boards and everything. So it was a fusing of the two. Yeah. So the camera sticks on him whilst I think it was Omega trying for a pile driver, or the other way around, Moxley trying for a pile driver. And then we see... Omega starts to lift him up for a backdrop. And then for no particular reason, we cut to something going on in the ring. Yep. And then we cut back to see Moxley now spread out over the barbed wire poker chip. Taz does realise what's going on very quickly and immediately asks for a replay. I know everyone says that WWE overproduces a lot of their stuff and they overagent it. But I always point to my favourite version of this type of match, you know, multi-person all over the arena brawl. And that is the Shields pay-per-view match debut at the TLC against Daniel Bryan, Kane and Ryback. So we've got two of the participants in that, in this match. Because there was always a a focal point. Very early on, it was like, this is what we're going to focus on. And it also played into the story of the match, which was that the Shield were a more cohesive unit and they always had the numbers to keep control. And at different points, Kane, Ryback, Bryan all had their moments where they got a bit more in control. But at some point, the numbers caught up to them. And it wasn't a handicap match. It was just, this is the Shield's domain. They work as a unit together. And in many ways... The second half of the match does play a version of that story in the sense that, and even in commentary, they say maybe the elite have bitten off more than they can chew Mm. because the Blackpool Combat Club do gradually come to dominate. But it takes a while and it takes a lot of chaotic cross-cutting and not necessarily having sense. Like I said with the previous Anarchy in the Arena, I would love if AEW released five streams of each camera that was following the action, and then you can re-watch it and you can catch everything. I kind of don't see how you can rate a match five stars if, at best, we've seen 33% of what happened in the match. (laughs) It's like people go and watch Formula One. I'm like, you just stood at one corner, like... How much of the actual race are you seeing, you know? Yeah. Well, how much of it is just watching a screen, I suppose? Because there were fun bits in it. And you got the sense, especially, this was maybe the first time that I got a real sense of what Blackpool Combat Club, in theory, is. That they are this fusing of two different ends of the ideological spectrum. Yeah. Got the technical wrestlers and the submission holds, but you've also got the shit kicking brawlers. Yeah. So you got like the Mox end of it and the Danielson end of it, and Utah and Castagnoli kind of fit in between. So that you've got moments where Moxley will take out a fork and start stabbing Omega in the head with it, but you'll also get a moment where he's got Matt Jackson in a figure four leg lock on the outside of the ring. Yeah. Or you've got moments where Wheelie Utah or Danielson goes at someone with a screwdriver. But you've also got moments where Claudio Castagnoli is doing a giant swing to Matt Jackson in the concession stand area. <laughs> and hitting him with a pile driver on a tow truck. I think that was maybe the moment where then it came into focus. They'd done the wild brawling. They'd all gone to their different parts. Yeah. And this was where you then played up the numbers advantage because that did take Matt Jackson out for a while. And after that, it was 
Blackpool Combat Club swarming whoever it was in the ring and being able to take advantage whenever. Putting out any fire that broke out from the Elite as well. Yeah. Like moments where Hangman Page suddenly has the screwdriver to get Danielson and that's the moment where Wheeler Yuta will come in and chop block. Yuta had such a great performance in this match overall. This was definitely a great show for Yuta. I wish we got more though because it's so funny that Yuta... His big showing with the Blackpool Combat Club was the valiant baby face that ever baby faced, you know, bleeding buckets in that match with John Moxley in order to earn the right to join the club yeah. and become their underling. But then over time, his personality starts to come out a bit more, especially in the Daniel Garcia matches. And then I thought when they did the heel turn, and Utah's done it great, and they kind of say, yeah, he's a little shit, but he's our little shit. Yeah. And I was like, you could make him like the scrappy do of wrestling. Yeah. In that it's either that he's brave or delusional. And it's so funny that like the final sequence of the match is built pretty much around Utah. Yeah. He is left on his own with Paige and Omega, but he doesn't do the heel thing of begging off, which like Danielson did at one point in the match when Hangman revealed that his eye was fully healed and he had a screwdriver. Yeah. Utah doesn't do that at all. He's like, fuck it, I'll take you both on, and starts attacking them both, and gets briefly the upper hand. It's a weird moment where the heel's doing the brave babyface thing, Yeah, and the babyfaces are the ones that are overwhelming the heel. Well, it's that moment, though, where, like, babyfaces get to be heels to heels, because it's like, you know, the knobhead getting his comeuppance. But Yuta hasn't been the biggest knobhead, to be fair. Again, like, if they have more of him being, like, a fushi, just being this little shithouse throughout the whole match, and, like, getting in his digs and then running away when the going was getting tough or something. Mm. I feel like that would have done it even more so. Yeah. But maybe they didn't want to make you, they didn't want to make Utah look that weak. I don't no, know. no, yeah. That, I don't think it quite fits with what they want a Blackpool Combat Club heel to be. It's more vicious arsehole than like out and out shithouse. Great example of Danielson channeling shithouse energy was his match against Brock Lesnar. That's more Fushi-esque. You don't want that kind of thing, I guess. For you to, in when you're putting these guys forward as like sick, depraved animals, basically. I don't know that the rest of the BCC are meant to be sick and depraved yet. Like, Castagnoli's always just kind of been like, he's sort of almost like their Jake Hager, like he's their muscle guy. Because mm. he's by far the biggest one. But he's like the one that you would feel like this stuff is in, in least in his elements. And, it, and he is doing like giant swings and pile drivers and more uppercuts and everything. He's not yeah. changing up and bringing out loads of weaponry. But he's more than happy to uppercut someone with like thumbtacks in their mouth. Like, he, he is leaning into it. That's true. I can't remember if you really enjoyed the Anarchy in the Arena first one more than I did. I enjoyed, like, the fun, silly chaos that it was. This is kind of like a separate thing. That was, like, two people that, like, two groups that just genuinely were sick of each other and hated each other and had been betrayed by each other in some cases, like, with Proud and Powerful, for example. Whereas this one is, oh, the wacky guys who are like, oh, the heart and soul. Well, not wacky, but there's elements of wackiness to them. I mean, they are singing along to carry on my way with Sun before this, like, blood death feud match. Yeah. Versus some guys who, like, to quote Bane from, like, Dark Knight Rises, were born in the darkness, raised in it. Well, I think it is more like a, a battle for the top spot, essentially. And it is, as you say, an ideological battle as well. And it is, in many ways, like almost an interpromotional dream match because it is the elite, the four guys that were never in the WWE that built this thing from the ground that the promotion is named after. 
yeah. against three guys from the WWE and their new little <laughs> mascot <laughs> named after another guy who'd been, in many ways, like the heart and soul of at least the developmental world and, and obviously was like the mentor of those guys mm. as well in some way, shape or form. It was almost like the equivalent of the Four Horsemen against the NWO War Games match in many ways. Yeah. Um, but it was also this sense as well that Danielson and Moxley have wounded pride. Moxley from losing to Hangman Page in his own domain. Yeah. And Danielson from losing the world title match to MJF and actually submitting. And as I said, I thought this would have been like, this could have led to some sort of internal conflict, but instead they had Danielson react to it every bit as bad and go down the sadistic route of... So he's like playing up this this snobbery, this, this sense that I am the best of all. And you jokers are not what wrestling really should be. This is just reminding me of why I don't necessarily even... Why I've never even loved a lot of the War Games matches, the the old NWA WCW versions, because there wasn't a through line of logic to it. It was just bleed, fighting corners, rake your faces against the cage. And this one, it's like the thought process between who bled in this match and who didn't didn't have any particular. Me- I don't know why Matt was the only one that didn't bleed for their team, and I don't know why John Moxley was the only one that. Well, I do know why John Moxley was the only one that. Bled I was going to say you know the answer to that. It's not necessarily through a storyline reason yeah. for it. And then one of the main other people that do bleeds is the referee. Yeah. I don't get what the point of that was. I thought it was way too early in the match. And again, it was just that sense of the camera didn't know where to go. Like, when we talked about camera work a lot, and we do, this is one thing that we should do for LMTYS, but I've always wanted to do it actually with someone that films wrestling shows. So once we can, if anyone knows someone we can, we can get in touch with us, please let us know. Contact details at the end of the episode. Because it's like, what wrestling and what all sports coverage should be is reactive. Yeah. You don't show the links of it because it was like the example i always gave was like there's a moment in the first episode of world of sport where the camera's in place for no re- to be fair there was no reason for a lot of the camera placements <laughs> in, in world of sport <laughs> but the camera was in place for someone to leap up onto the apron to interfere what it should be is that that person leaps on the apron to interfere and the camera catches them and you cut to it yeah, or they just happen to come into the field. You don't have it like fo- like zoomed in focus just for that face to pop into view. Mm. And there are moments where they've done that, but if you make it, it look still like it's reactive. So the perfect combination of that is that it has the reactive nature of sports coverage, but you can sometimes fit a fantastic shot that tells it all. Most perfect example, everyone usually cites it, is Vince McMahon emerging from under the apron but we know that he's gone under the apron so there's a reason that the camera's there to catch him when he comes up and then you see the eyes the bloody face and then the camera pulls back to reveal hulk hogan getting up in the ring and not knowing what's about to come to him yeah that's a perfect example of that AEW don't do those shots enough to me because mm. i just don't know if it's they just they don't they don't like to plan it out as much they like the anarchy element to it but then it just leads to moments where stuff's lost and i'm taken out of it like like the backdrop i don't see why the director doesn't think what we really need to cut to now is a random bit of matt fighting on the outside of the ring yeah and then when we come back then maybe they're falling into the poker chip 
and it's not like, and it's a tough job. I don't know if you listen to the audio of the director directing CM Punk's debut for AEW, and you're hearing him say, "Set up camera three, camera three, set up camera five, camera five. So, and he's just talking constantly. Yeah. So it's a tough job to do in the first place, which makes you appreciate when they do it, how they do it well. Mm. As much as we shit on Kevin Dunn, it's pretty remarkable some of the stuff, at least the entire production team of the WWE, and to a lesser extent AEW does. Yeah. Like, there was just too many... I'd have said, like, AEW is kind of the continuation of WCW, and there was just those moments that were like, that's such a WCW thing to do. One of them being that the camera catches them when they're going over the barricade into the ringside area and the camera just shows the rows of empty seats yeah on the hard cam side that they've clearly made a point at various other points in this show to make it look like it's a full arena and not capture those seats and just in that one shot you're like oh wow they didn't sell out this place at all no wcw would be terrible for that like brawling in the crowd but then brawling into a section where there is just empty seats and it's like surely someone should have said guys not there don't brawl there <laughs> i don't know what level of experience the aw crew has so i don't really want to say they'll learn with time because maybe they've already had them. well that's the thing it's been three years yeah four i mean i've said an aside and we've said in our whatsapp chat that and i've had other people say in other whatsapp chats as well actually the consensus is don't do double and nothing in Vegas next year because that market seems pretty played out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was saying either do it in like Atlantic City or do it in a more of a novelty place in Las Vegas that's not the MGM Grand where you can fill up either a smaller space. Like, you know, one of my favorite WrestleMania setups is the one for WrestleMania 9 where they just built this little makeshift arena outside of Caesar's Palace, wasn't it? Yeah, outside Caesar's Palace. Uh, you know, it was a terrible, maybe the worst WrestleMania of all time, but... It looked different. Yeah, so if you're going to play up the the gambling thing and you're going to keep going to Las Vegas, well, you got to be careful now where you go to that well. Mm. Just to go back, actually, to your point about John Moxley, what I do also like is the Blackpool Combat Club are all in, like, John Moxley cosplay. Yeah. So it is like, like I said, the wrestler's side of them, but it's like, no, this is... The, we've all got to be a bit more Moxley this time. Yeah. <laughs> we've got to get down the violent end of it. Oh, yeah, you've got a dress accordingly kind of thing. Yeah. So you have this ideological conflict, and I suppose an AEW... I mean, wrestling's always had a... Especially since Vince took over, there's always been an arch, slightly ironic, humorous way of looking at it and being the elite end of it. Although, to be fair, the first part was there before the elite in the first Anarchy in the Arena, where Justin Roberts... In the first one, it was just shit's about to hit the fan yeah whereas this time he says it like with glee it's like this is his you know let the war games begin their version of that is the shit's about to hit the fan now that's fine the other thing they did to go look it's anarchy in the arena again i didn't like i didn't like the live band i didn't like that whole let's keep playing wild thing and like, oh let's just keep playing wild thing but with a live band it just didn't work for me and that's before we talk about the costume of the guy. Yeah, that was a message I sent to you. I'm really not sure about this lead singer's blackface. I think it hadn't helped that literally Max Caster had made that observation about Malachi Black. Yeah. You can argue with Malachi Black, it was at least just only part of his face that was like that. This guy, 
I think it was the red paint around the lips and the mouth that really went beyond to like, I'm pretty sure you look far too close to those dolls that a certain generation of white people in this country don't understand why you can't say their name anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, for me, it was more like, okay, wear a mask, but like if you're painting underneath the mask as well, like, I don't know, man. I mean, Wes Borland's had very similar... It's not... It's not ideal. I don't think that was their intention, but it was just, you know, it was just a little... It was just, you know. yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying it was, but and to be fair, that guy did get kicked in the face, and that's yeah. why I actually liked the live band element to it. The first time when they did it, and it was just random, semi New Jack tribute, I suppose. Yeah. And when the crowd realised they were playing the music again, that just let them go ape shit. And then they had Jericho turn it off, so it was you know, yeah. playing up the heel element to it as well. Whereas with this one. The young bucks just suddenly are on the stage, and the guy reveals that he's got a Blackpool Combat Club shirt on. Yeah. So then they just super kick him, much to the delight of the bass player. <laughs> I do like how the band are like, "Oh, time to leave," <laughs> and just very gingerly leave with their instruments. Like, mm. so I didn't mind it. That was that. That was an example of. The AEW sense of humour. So I didn't mind that at all. Uh, I don't know how you make it interesting a third time in a row. Other than just not having it be John Moxley. It'd be funnier, I suppose, if it was the Elite and they would just carry on my wayward son. Which is not the most hard-hitting adventures. <laughs> I mean, would you have to pay, the, would you have to pay the, the fee each time for the song? I don't think so. I think it's probably just a one and done, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not like... I'm a nice guy, I'm a hell of a guy, and tonight we honor you. Stop the music! Stop it! We have to pay if we go one second further. (laughs) It took me a second to pick up on what you were putting down there. I think one of the reasons I don't like it is that the silhouette pose somewhat deters from the crowd getting to react to them coming out. You know what I mean? Mm. When Omega did it with the battle cry, it worked because it was his silhouette. Then it was the reveal of him as he entered. And also they had that brilliant moment where he was posing and then you just suddenly saw the silhouette of John Moxley appear behind him. And oh. one of my favourite Botchmania endings of all time was them doing that but putting the bottom credits <laughs> to it. I had a soft spot for the dancing ladies with the brooms purely because it was that that's the kind of like hammy crap that Kenny would do. Yeah, and you know it kept some of the Jags. I imagine those were Jacksonville Jaguars cheerleaders that Tony wanted to like give a little bit of work to during the pandemic. To be honest, I was disappointed that Hangman lost the eye patch. I thought that was a very cool look for him. I yeah, it's a callback to John Moxley though, because Moxley's done that when Jericho stabbed him with his jacket. <laughs> but his is like rhinestone studded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean in a sense because like look logically. Spoiler alert, there's going to be something similar to this that they do quite soon at some point. So yeah, the story of it in theory is that this is Blackpool Combat Club's domain and it's more just their never-say-die attitude that all babyfaces have that keeps them in. And then when Matt Jackson comes back and the big spot that everyone's talking about with him hitting a super kick to John Moxley... With his exploding boots. Yeah. Itself sort of a callback to the uh, Funtax shoe, in a way. In a way, it's also a callback to the exploding barbed wire matches, I Mm. suppose. Finally, there was an explosion that actually... It's probably about the same level of explosion as the whole of the first one. Yeah, but you put it in someone's face. It all concentrated into one shoe. Yeah. (laughs) 
It, it looked a lot... It, that explosion did look, look a lot better. Um, Matt, then obviously, it sort of exposes him because he gets the, the thumbtacks in the uh, in the foot, which I think is one of the spots which gets the loudest reaction. We, we've talked about relatability with pain in wrestling. That very much ticked that box. Also, John Moxley must be having awful flashbacks of big explosions of sparks in his face at inopportune times in a wrestling Oh, game. yeah! The camera, yeah. Why is this always me? <laughs> oh, I can't escape this shit. <laughs> but it is one of those weird ones where it's like the spot that everyone will remember it for, but the way that they've structured it, it comes at about the two-thirds point of the match. And as you say, they do fun stuff with it afterwards. They get their own back by dropping his foot into thumbtacks. But it's also one of those ones where, like, they're not even, like, holding his mouth to keep it open for him to hold the thumbtacks. He's just kind of somewhat willingly <laughs> going to his mouth. No one's pinching the nose, are they? No. You know, it's like when people do the surfboard submission, they're still having to punch that person in the kidneys to get the hands up. Yeah. You'd think... Getting thumbtacks in your mouth is a little bit harder to, to stop, you know, to force onto someone if you don't. And there was three of them there. Yeah. It was just, I don't know. It's more just the idea of the spot itself. Yeah. That's all they really need to worry about. And, you know, again, I think a lot of people would see this as nitpicking from us. But when I want wild brawls, I either want them to be as wild as possible. And there's actually a, a match of a wild brawl that I might try and bring up as a match of the week involving Atsushi Onita and it's not like a barbed wire double exploding whatever it's just a tag team match at a Krakowin Hall show and it's just what I think a wild brawl should be if you really want to do it yeah there is no holding back in that match and I'll if I remember I'll bring it up in an upcoming match of the week yeah wild brawls are fun but then after a while especially when it's just you know two people walking around trading punches in the crowd then it's just like Bruiser Brody, Abdullah the Butcher, and it's and again, it's like the camera doesn't know. Well, let's focus on Nick. What's he doing? Oh, he's whipping someone with a fan's AEW belt. Yeah. Or he's hitting him with a popcorn box. But then. Nick had some nice moments in Again, this. because it's reactive, it's like they're reacting to stuff, but by the time that they get to the cut to it, it's already happened. Yeah. And the thing that you were just setting up, and they thought, well, this is an interesting, then that happens. Again, it's hard, because if it's like they're all brawling over the crowd, how can they even see what the other ones are doing to know, okay, this is the moment when I need to. Because I think when Claudio was doing the giant swing, or Claudio did the pile driver on the pickup truck another big spot was happening at the same time and unless they're like we had the picture in picture didn't we yeah but but the wrestlers didn't have that yeah 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 so uh and again that's probably the ref's job to be communicating via the producer i have a feeling because it's going to be in a contained environment their blood and guts match assuming that's what they're going to have i mean it most likely is um i think that's going to be better because, but it, look, it doesn't have to go down the other end of like those ridiculously overproduced WWE War Games matches where they're all just like both teams are in one ring each and they're just standing in front of each other to set up a, like a camera shot and all those dumb things. But there's like there's the right balance. Yeah, there's the WCW War Games, there's the NXT War Games, and somewhere in the middle of those two is my favorite kind of War Games. Mm. I suppose mm. I've said like some of those ones that people adore. The WCW did. I would genuinely rate the Team Ripley against Team Baszler war games match ahead of any of them. Mm. 
And, and to be fair, there was a little bit of that with Blood and Guts. It's like, this guy brings in this weapon, and then this guy brings in that weapon. Yeah. And then just, it's the table, because of course it's the table, because it's the last person. Because it's fun when there's a little bit of a thought, and like I said, that's why I love that shield match, because there was logic in everything the shield was doing. Sometimes it came a cropper for them. Like Seth Rollins planning to do a big move on Ryback whilst they went off to finish off Daniel Bryan in the ring. That part happened, but unfortunately for Rollins... He got thrown off the ladder by Ryback. Yeah. Because they'd done the divide and conquer. They had enough time to get it done before Ryback could come back and save Brian. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. And like, ultimately in this case, it's the Blackpool Combat Club that used the numbers. And even though they use the numbers and they are more tactically astute, one would argue, than the elite in this match. They still have to have a whole extra man added to get the job done. Yeah, and again, like, obviously, Don Callis has been doing great stuff, and he's getting booed out of every building that he arrives at. Again, he was one that was, like, a little bit more awkwardly... Like I said, I don't need the overly dramatic versions of it that you get in, in WWE, and that sometimes in AEW with the elites, especially Matt Jackson... I was going to say, in terms of like all those over dramatically moments, and you did allude to it earlier, there was only one bit of elite miscommunication. Obviously, when Hangman accidentally big boots Kenny Omega. For the elite, that's very minimal. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They did a lot of their, oh, we're the elite spots, like we'll all do the Terminator run. They all do super kicks, they all do the corner punches, much to the disgust, I'm sure, of JR. But particularly Kenny and Hangman were like, look, we are a mint team together. We work really well together. They hit all their tag team moves. But there is that moment early on where Hangman does hit Kenny Omega with a boot, and so it's like that. Yeah. And it's another way of showing that they're not yet fully cohesive, whereas Blackpool Combat Club are. Yeah. But again, I think it would be more of that Blackpool Combat Club that they knew what they needed to do for this thing, and they knew... Like, who's going to be the sacrificial lamb like Seth Rollins was for the Shield in that moment. But if Utah had been someone that had just something crazy happen to him. But instead, Utah's the one that gets the the pin, which was such a clever way of doing it as well. That, like, the lowest member of the Blackpool Combat Club gets it on the top guy in the elites, in theory. But I thought that the way that they did and and paid off the Konsuke Takeshita appearance was a little bit awkward and a little bit rushed. Mm. Like, Callis got into the ring, and whilst Omega had Utah in the one-winged angel, but Omega, like, dropped him before even looking at Callis. And maybe it'd have been that Callis said something. He heard the crowd. Maybe, yes. But I just still think the best way to do that is that he turns around and sees Callis in the ring, and then he drops him. To me, that makes more sense, and that's more dramatically satisfying with the camera, catching the, the locking of the eyes. Yeah. In that way. And Konsuke appearing not from the back, but from like the front of the ring was very odd as well. And like he covers his face, but not that well. And then takes it off anyway. Like, uh... yeah. Well, that's what everyone always does when it's like, you know, the reveal needs to be. Keshta as again, like this Don Callis trying to do something with like the younger version of Omega. Like he's the son I wish I had, you know, sort of thing. He's more moldable. He's younger and more naive. That's what it is. But it's also, yeah, because he's naive. So I can see Takeshita turning face fairly quickly. Because I don't know that Takeshita as a wrestler, his style of wrestling and everything leans into being a long time heel. Yeah. It's got a bit of Leo DiCaprio vibe. Like, I'll drop you for a younger person because you're more likely to put up with my shit. He's getting 
dangerously close. <laughs> yeah, we kind of talked all around it. It's a fun match. Like, I would go four to four and a quarter stars, and I liked it more than the first Anarchy in the Arena. Mm. But I've said, like, I just have my issues with stuff that other people think this is what they want. It's not what I want exactly because of the flaws I found within it. But taking it for what it was, it was fun. I need more because they, they're all about the stories and they're all about the characters and they're all about that because they give me blood and violence every fucking week. <laughs> you know? All this had that was different was a soundtrack accompaniment. Yeah. Really. Yeah, I know what you mean. And an exploding shoe. Yeah. And I appreciated those moments, but that doesn't make five stars for me. Like, was it the most fun match of the night? Arguably in terms of out- outright fun. Was it the one that did, like, the best callbacks of the night? No. I think the Fatal 4-Way did better callbacks. I'd rate them probably equally, maybe the 4-Way slightly above, because, again, that had, like, a central focus. Yeah. And the finish was better, I think. Yeah. Better executed. Yeah. I think the 4-Way was better as well, to be honest. And I think also because we went into that with relatively low expectations, whereas I think we went into Anakin Dirt Arena with higher expectations. Yeah. I mean, once you threaten to set a guy on fire, what's an exploding shoe? It's part of a person's body on fire, briefly. But, yeah. you know. I do. I would love John Moxley at some point, because he's great at those little moments in promos, to just go, why does stuff keep exploding around me? <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? I, I do want, at some point, Moxley just to see Kingston appear, and he's like, oh, crap. Not this again. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. There is, as, as um, whilst I do rate Anarchy in the arena slightly above the original, there is no moment as memorable as a somewhat glazed over, expressionless Eddie Kingston marching to the ring with a canister of petrol. I want him back in AEW. And I think Tony's doing absence makes the heart grow farther. Well, we're going to get him in the bloody G1 climax. So that's going to be something different. I'll tell you what, I can't wait. And Gabriel Kidd's in the G1! And all those weeks of Eddie Kingston cutting post-match promos on the YouTube channel. That'll be a lot of fun to watch. Moxie's one after Dominion was a lot of fun, where he's having to go at Okada. You seem to like beating up 14-year-old boys. What have you got against my shooter? <laughs> I've not seen his, but I've seen Danielson's call-out video. Oh... If Forbidden Door doesn't give us at least one five-star match, I'm going to be shocked. I know New Japan doesn't want to tempt fate, but do you reckon part of it is going, you thought that was good? Wait till all our fuckers are healthy. (laughs) And that will probably be sometime very soon after this episode comes out. For the next episode, the Melt to Five Star project continues, and it's going to include a couple of the people from this match, as John Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli fresh off of their victory in Anarchy in Dirt Arena, have headed off to Japan to help Moxley's Padawan, Shota Umino. And they're teaming up to challenge for the never-openweight six-man tag titles currently held by Totenhiro Ishii, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and just about to enter his grumpy old man stage of his wrestling career, Kazuchika Okada. So I mean, if people want to get in touch with you, with further examples of lead singers who really should have thought through their on-stage costuming, how can they do so? Was that a Pink Floyd reference? I like that. Mm, not really. <laughs> uh, people can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of times Wild Thing was sung before his chin got like snaps off his face. 
My name is Lorcan Munnell. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N at the start of Anarchy. I almost certainly said that at the previous Anarchy in the Arena podcast that we did, but lay off. I think I think some listeners could predict if we do Anarchy in the Arena 3, what my Simon Cross 3 will be, to be fair. so I think I'll also guess what punning title I'll give that match as well. Anarchy in the Atwana. <laughs> that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put it at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. Assuming there are no five-star matches in the interim, and that's a big assumption to make, how dare you? All there is left to say at this point is that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time.